This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. From MPB Think Radio, this is Creature Comforts. It's the show all about your animals and the animals around you. I'm Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Since it's the first Thursday of the month, the doors to our pet hospital are wide open. Yep, it's an all-pet day here on Creature Comforts, and we welcome all of your pet questions from the big to the small. If you have any concerns about your furry friends, also if you have any general wildlife experiences, you can always email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. If you miss Creature Comforts on Thursday, it repeats every Saturday morning at 6. So good morning. Let's start with Libby, our West Coast correspondent. Oh, good morning. Things are changing a little. Fall migration of birds is underway on the East Coast and the West Coast. So things are changing a little, even though I know you're having extreme heat still, I guess, right in in the Jackson area. Actually, it's been a little bit cooler this week. We've had a lot of rain, so it's kept the the hot, hot temperatures down. It's still hot, but nothing like that real brutal heat we were having a couple of weeks ago. The rain, I think, has helped out in that regard just a little bit. Yeah, that's good. We've had absolutely no rain other than just a few sprinkles a couple of days here in Corvallis, but we did have some rain on the coast, which was kind of good to to have after five weeks of no rain. (laughs) And on the coast, we saw brown pelicans and osprey, much like we would here in Mississippi if we'd gone to the coast. But there was a constant chorus of harbor seals in the background, so that's a little different. We got to see harbor seals everywhere we went, and then there are auklets and murrelets and lots of little birds that we would never see on the East Coast. Let's see. I've got just a couple of, of, for the future, Emma Rhodes is going to be on the show in a couple of weeks, on the 18th, August the 18th. She'll be talking about Purple Martins. And I know our our listeners have had questions before about Purple Martins. So be sure to listen on the 18th for her. And then next week, on August the 11th, Alex Littlejohn, who is the the director of Mississippi's Office of the Nature Conservancy, and he'll be joining us to talk a little bit about what they've got going on. You know, Libby, you're the person I like on a vacation. Y'all do so much stuff that it's almost like when you get back home, you need to take a vacation from your vacation. But we appreciate you giving us a glimpse into uh, life there on the West Coast. A lot of us, myself included, probably haven't been out there a whole lot. So it's great to get a window into a different part of the country with your reports every Thursday. So we appreciate you including us when you have your adventures out there. Thank you. I'm always glad to join. Oh, I have one more thing, too. Uh, Nick Winstead from the Museum of Natural Science sent out an email asking for people to send him information about roosting sites for chimney swifts. We've talked about so many bird species declining in numbers through the years. We know that chimney swifts have really declined in numbers. Part of it is probably a lack of chimneys. Years and years ago, hundreds of years ago, I guess, here in the United States, chimney swifts became habituated to using chimneys, you know, as people built them. So that's primarily where we find them now. There are very few big old trees for chimney swift 
roots and they like to get together like this time of year you could have a a communal big roost with a thousand birds joining in so if you know about any of those roosts it doesn't have to be active now something that's been active in the past that you've noticed in Madison Rankin or Hines counties get in touch with Nick Winstead at the Museum of Natural Science. He's beginning a study of these birds to try to figure out kind of where they still are in our area. All right. Some exciting news from the Hattiesburg Zoo. On July 5th, the zoo's female two-toed sloth Mo gave birth to a male baby named Lumpy. It's the third live birth for Mo at the Hattiesburg Zoo, and Lumpy made his debut this past Saturday on July 30th. So exciting news. So I would recommend if you're a zoo person checking out the Hattiesburg Zoo. It's a great zoo. It was recently expanded. They've got a huge giraffe enclosure. And I think I might have mentioned on the air a couple of times that's one of my favorite zoo animals. So I'm certainly enjoy going down there. But it's it's a very nice zoo. And I saw something online today that they're doing some more expansion by next summer. So exciting things happening at the Hattiesburg Zoo. Dr. Major is with us on this all-pet day. And, Dr. Major, let's jump right in here. I've got an email for you. This one says, recently adopted a dog from the pound. She's a mixed breed but definitely has some hound in her. She seems to have a body odor. have heard that some dogs just naturally have a strong body smell. How often can we bathe her? Gosh, that's a great question. Some of the uh, hound-type breeds do have more of a body odor than, than others. Ears are always one consideration. Make sure that the ears are clean. If they're infected, they need to be treated. I try to go by a rule of not to bathe over every two weeks. You bathe much more often than that. You start to deplete oils from the hair, and skin may start to dry out. Any tips for when you're bathing a dog? I guess maybe outside in a, in a big tub if you have one. <laughs> Absolutely. It depends on how big this dog is. Sometimes it's very difficult to even have a tub big enough for some of these major-sized dogs, 100 pounds plus. The other thing that may need to be checked on this dog would be the anal sacs, anal glands. They can have quite an odor, and that may be a part of the problem with this dog's odor. So an excellent time if you are brave enough to express the anal glands after maybe someone showing you how in the tub would be the place to do that because it is a very strong smell and could be part of the problem. Do most dogs take well to being bathed? I'd say the majority of dogs do. Now, there are some dogs that have a very, what should I say, fear or aversion to water and act somewhat violently. My suggestion is to take it easy. Don't just use a heavy sprayer or anything. If a dog is not used to being bathed, just wet the dog down and then apply some Shampoo and work that in and then rinse it out good. And you might want to shampoo, you know, do two applications and rinses. Make sure that you get all the shampoo off the skin or out from the areas where you've got it. And I would recommend, this is just something I've learned over the years, take a cotton ball and put it in each ear to avoid getting soap or water down in the ear because that can cause some irritation if if that happens. And the emailer mentions it's an adopted dog recently, so this might be a good reason to go ahead and establish a a relationship for the dog with their vet. And certainly the vet would be able to kind of tell if this is a kind of a normal dog smell or if there might be a problem that needs to be investigated further. I know that some people have also got much more sensitive noses than others. I may be numb to some smells because of over the years, you know, you're constantly smelling 
smelly ears or <laughs> skin, whatever. So other people might pick up on it much more quickly. And I would say that there are differences in ability of people to smell. Yeah, my, my sense of smell is not that good either. I have a friend of mine who smells something. like, can't you smell that? I'm like, uh, no. And a lot of times, as you say, if it's a bad smell, maybe we're, we're better off that way. <laughs> right. Personal request. I like to visit zoos and aquariums and that sort of thing. Recently, uh, this last weekend, went down to New Orleans to visit the aquarium there. I would highly recommend that. But also, my friend and I are thinking about going to the Alabama Aquarium, which is located on Dolphin Island, if I'm not mistaken. So we know have a lot of listeners in the Mobile area. If anybody has been there and could give me kind of a review, I would certainly appreciate that. And also, we are looking for pet questions for Dr. Major. Dr. Major, here is another email. This one says... Do white American bulldogs have a tendency to have skin allergies? Does omega-3 and vitamin E help prevent? My dog weighs 80 pounds. What would be the recommended dose? Okay, let's think about this for a second. You know, certainly the white dogs, the big dogs, I would hope this dog is an inside dog, first of all. If a dog is outside, especially the light-colored dogs, they are sensitive to sun, and they're going to dig or be in the dirt, so... That can affect the skin condition. You mentioned vitamin E. Right. A good vitamin supplement would be important. I think that would give enough of the vitamin E. There are some good vitamins out there. The fish oil, I would say a dog this size probably could take a 1,000. You know, one of the capsules over the counter would be fine. Probably a 1,000 milligram, I think, is, is a capsule. So basically the same thing that you or I would take. It does help uh, the fish oil. But you're saying with the vitamin, probably better to just kind of get a well-rounded multivitamin as opposed to trying to go for a specific type of vitamin? Exactly. You know, you could give too much vitamin E, for example, if you were going to give it. I would rather see somebody get a good quality dog vitamin and use that rather than trying to supplement individually. A question about foods that pets can and cannot eat. I guess I bring this up because my cat was eating some lettuce the other day, which I thought was kind of strange, but maybe, I don't know, he seemed he, he seemed to like it. And we hear a lot about what pets can and can't eat. Can you kind of boil it down to you know, what are the real things that we need to avoid when, when it comes to pet and human food? You know, that's an excellent question. And one of the problems, of course, is that sometimes the pets are curious and they will want to eat or, you know, sample different types of things. Cats especially like some greenery. For inside cats, they have, you know, like a little greenery box that would have either maybe oats or something like that that would sprout and the cats could eat it. They like that, and, of course, I think that was the attraction to the lettuce. And they will fool you a lot of times. I have a one of our small dogs likes oranges, and if you're eating an orange, she'll be right there wanting, you know, to share with her, which is a little unusual for dogs to like fruits. And of course, we know there are some foods that you do not want to give your dog. And one of those, of course, is the grapes and raisins. They can cause some serious problems with our dogs. As far as people food, if we start feeding from the table or feeding what's left over, a lot of times this can lead to obesity and can be an issue. You know, also, I would say if you start feeding your dog food from the table, Every time you eat, I have some friends of mine that have like several dogs. Every time I go over their house to eat, it's like there's us and then, and then there's all of the dogs waiting around, hopeful that they'll get a scrap right. from their way. And this works sometimes if you're eating and, you know, the dog is insistent on having something. Just take a small little bow with some of the kibble 
and give the pet a little of that. Usually that helps. At least you're giving it something, and you're not having to give it people food. I'm sure some people have tried to kibble themselves as they eat. But uh, anyway, maybe not. Anyway, but that has worked in a lot of cases where you just take a little little bowl or whatever and, and put some of the kibble. And if you want to give the pet a treat while you're eating, that would be the thing I would do. But you're right. If you do that, make sure you keep your eyes on what you're grabbing through and don't just start. <laughs> All right. All right, uh, Java has something he wants to add. Go ahead, Java. Yeah, Dr. Major, you you guys were talking about the food. And with my dog, we recently had to take a trip to the Animal Emergency and Referral Center in Flowood this past weekend. She, I guess, cut herself somehow, and maggots got into the wound and really got to her good. You know, she's on the mend, and she wasn't touching her dry food that she normally eats. You know, we usually just give her dry food, and it's it's right. fine. But we start popping the top on the can uh, wet food, and, I mean, you would have thought she got the magic healing pill or something because she went immediately for that. Like, nothing was wrong with her. I didn't know if, like, when dogs are sick, are they, you know, is the dry food too much to crunch, or, you know, what's the kind of differences with that? Well, of course, that's a special treat for her since she was not used to the canned food. And it's amazing that she knew when you pop that top on a can and she knew there was something maybe for her. But a lot of times in their cuperative stage, they would prefer a canned food or a soft food. And we usually follow up surgery the next morning with a soft food for the dogs. And they seem to like it and appreciate it. But you can get in a trap where that's all she wants to eat if you're not careful. So I would use that as a special treat. Yeah, I think what we're going to do is to like wean her off maybe is kind of mix it up with some kibble. <laughs> and that would then, be fine. And then she's just, doing okay now? Yeah, she's doing okay. Dr. Major, I'll send you a picture. You may be in shock and awe, but she's doing fine now. The maggots, they kind of... Oh, man, I was I was sad for a few days because she was hurting. But thankfully, if people don't know about the Animal Emergency Referral Center, especially in this central Mississippi area, back Mississippi State College of Veterinary Medicine, those are some great people over there, and they helped my lady. <laughs> Very good. The thing about maggots, which are fly larvae, they can appear, those of you who watch forensic files, for example, mm-hmm. about people, but the maggots can appear just in a very short period of time, hours or less. And especially with it as hot as it is right now, it doesn't take long for them to actually become an infestation. We're very fortunate here that we don't have the screwworm fly, which back in past years especially affected large animals, and they can actually eat into the flesh, whereas the blowfly maggots, which is what your dog had, I'm sure, they secrete a toxin, if you will, and they feed on that, in other words, on the tissue, but they don't burrow into the body cavity. That's the best thing. Screwworms have been eradicated supposedly from the United States, and there's still some in Central America for certain. Uh, Dr. Major, I noticed when I was uh, sweeping up the other day that looked, something that looked like a cat whisker on the ground. And I, you know, So I'm wondering, do cats shed their whiskers like they do their fur? Well, that's, that's an unusual question. They, for one reason or another, they may break off. Normally, we don't see them as they shed. And 
I wouldn't sit there trying to pull a whisker off of your cat. That probably would be painful. But they do drop some, and usually they would come back. We see all kind of things. And first thing in the wintertime is maybe a pilot light comes on. We see whiskers that get kind of singed or burned, (laughs) and that can happen. But there's a lot of theories on how cats use their whiskers and probably helps them at night that they can actually feel in a tight place with those whiskers. They get some idea of where they are, but they can see quite well in the dark, too. And do they keep growing or do they kind of get to one kind of specific length and that's it? They get to one specific length and that'd be it. But I'll be honest with you, I don't know how often they shed, but we do find them occasionally. Yeah, and, and like I said, I've seen that, and it's obviously, it doesn't look like there's any missing from his face, so I think it's just a matter of maybe one dropping off and being replaced right. by another one. So, Right. We have got a caller on the line, so let's say good morning to our friend Eric in Liberty. Good morning, sir. Morning. Mr. Farrell, since you visit the Hattiesburg Zoo a lot, I was wondering whether or not did you see that solid black jaguar that they have on hand over there. I think it's about 11 years old as a female. And then my second question is, I have a bunch of birds coming in my yard. Look, at some days it's like Alfred Hitchcock the birds because I leave out dog food. And, you know, I have cardinals, crows, blue jays, woodpeckers, and everything, et cetera. So and I was wondering whether or not it's a good thing to leave that dog food out. Libby, do you think the dog food might be attracting the birds? In fact, it'll attract a lot of wildlife. We've kind of addressed this on the show before, and I'm sure Troy will have a statement, but I certainly don't recommend you leave dog food out overnight. I think that too many animals get attracted to it that you really would rather not be feeding, that they need to be eating wild food. You don't want raccoons there. They can fight with your dogs and cats. Cat food, I think people leave out overnight more often than they do dog food. And I would say that neither one is a good idea to leave out. Dr. Major, what do you think? I think it's an excellent comment. But, you know, really, uh, your raccoons and some of the other wild animals can spread some diseases as well. Raccoons, for example, they are like a dog in a lot of respects and urinate in marked territory and are known to spread certain diseases like leptospirosis and maybe some others. But the other thing is, Libby mentioned, they might fight with your cats or dogs as well, causing some issues. I understand leaving some food out, but not let's take it up at night and not leave it out because it will attract maybe some unwanted pests, if you will. And Eric, I, last time I was at the Hattiesburg Zoo, it was quite hot, so a lot of the animals were wisely trying to stay in the shade, so I didn't see that. But the big cats are one of my favorite parts of the zoo, so I'll definitely uh, keep my eyes out for it next time I travel down to the Hub City. So we appreciate your call this morning. This is an all-pet day on Creature Comforts. If you have a pet question or a comment that you'd like to share with us, you can send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. We have another email here for you, Dr. Major. We have a wonderful three-year-old golden retriever. I use Topical Flea Monthly. He has a scalabore collar, and I give him fish oil tablets, but he still scratches a lot and can easily kick off a hot spot. Is there anything else that you could suggest that we might use to help his apparent sensitive skin? It's predominantly a problem during flea season. Right. It sounds like hopefully the flea situation is under control. Some dogs respond to actually an antihistamine when they initially start scratching, whether it's a flea or not. And a lot of times you'll think the dog has fleas, and but they'll be scratching probably due to an allergy of sorts. If you use Benadryl, I would give it two to three times a day, and that may help ward off initially its reflex. On the other hand, if it gets to be a hot spot or moist eczema is what that is, certainly it may need medical attention 
to prevent spread. And then a lot of times there are other things that are used, whether it's steroids, uh, drugs like Apoquil or Cytopoint. So these are things that can help with that itchiness. But being flea-free is a very, very big thing and one of the most important things that you're doing. So it's kind of trying to stay on top of it and not let it get carried away. One thing that you helped me with when I came in with my cat once in terms of flea control was to think about not only, you know, proper control for your pet, things like Brevecto and and that sort of thing, but also uh, maybe if you can go to a pet store and get some spray to where you can spray around your house to try to keep control of the flea population that way as well. Yes, usually flea control, and we've kind of gotten complacent in a way because a lot of the products are really, really good. But in a lot of cases, once you get an infestation in the house, you need to take certain measures such as vacuuming frequently, possibly using some sort of spray where you know that the fleas are, that's safe for the pet. And the yard then certainly can be an issue. If there are a lot of stray cats or dogs in the area, certainly you would have a constant supply of fleas that when your dog or cat goes outside, they would pick those up and bring them back in too. So it's a battle. But we do have excellent flea products, so that's great. Dr. Major, we just had an email come across email, animals at mpbonline.org. And it's funny because we've been talking a lot about dogs today. I mean, Kevin mentioned his cat, but this is a cat question. And it seems to be a lot of skin-related things, too. I have a 10-year-old orange tabby female cat. I've noticed recent patches of lost hair on her back legs. She's a very frequent bather, so I assume that's the reason but are there potential other causes I should be aware of? You know, cats can develop some fairly severe skin issues. And to tell you that what this is without seeing the cat, it would be difficult for me to. Cats actually go through a condition where they call it fur mowing. They'll literally lick the fur off of the inguinal area, for example, or off of their legs. And this usually involves fleas or ruled out an allergy of some sort. There are medications that can be given. If it gets severe or it looks like there's infection, I definitely would get this cat in to see your vet. But there's a condition called miliary dermatitis, which basically means small bumps. And usually these are under the neck or down the neck and or the shoulders and can be quite severe at times. So if something like that occurs with your cat, I would get in to see your vet. Now, outside of a cone, Dr. Major, are there any ways to keep, you know, your dogs or cats from licking on their skin? Because like I said with my dog, she had to get the cone when she left the pet hospital because of the healing sores and didn't need to lick kind of the scabs off of them. So is there anything outside of those funny-looking cones? (laughs) You know, that's probably the most common thing that's used. Most pets dislike those, cats especially, and dogs. If you've got a large dog, you better clear off your coffee table and end tables because they'll clear it off for you with a cone if you're not careful. They're excellent as far as knocking things off. But those work well in some cases. Sometimes a bandage or a wrap would work. I've seen people improvise, like take an old T-shirt or a sweatshirt and modify it where you can put it on your dog. That helps a lot of times. Cats are not real happy with that. However, I've seen cats that somebody's constructed a sock (laughs) type thing where they put the cat's head through the hole and make holes for front legs, and it does help prevent the cat from reaching certain areas. 
Yeah, I think anytime you see a picture of a pet, maybe on Facebook or somewhere online, and they have one of those cones on, they just look so miserable. And you think about it, it's like, well, yeah, they've got that thing, and like, I want to scratch that, but I can't get to it. So Yeah, because the way she maneuvers around the house, I just say her angles are off. Because with the cone, <laughs> she, you know, she used to get a few inches through the little slot, but no, she, she has to take her time and maneuver the cone around the house. Right. They're pretty inventive with that. I have seen some that would actually use the cone to scratch a place. In other words, they figured out that, hey, if the cone's going to rub it right there, I'll use that rather than being able to lick or, or chew on it. You know, earlier we were talking about sort of the way pets can sense some things. Job was talking about the, with the wet food. I know that every time I give my cat Brevecto, actually done it with a friend of mine is around, so I hold the cat down and he squirts it on there. But the other day when we were putting it on there, you know, he was perfectly fine and I got up to get the Brevecto, and all of a sudden he made a dash for under the bed. And I was like, how did you know what we were doing? So, But I do say that the, the human still sometimes does have the upper hand because we play this game where he runs around, he'll run behind the couch, he runs into areas where he can't get to. But eventually he kind of corners himself in a room where I can get to him. So I feel like I still basically... <laughs> Have the upper hand. Have uh, control. That's right. Yeah. But fortunately, he did very well this time. He held down. We got the full squirt on there. And then, of course, he took off afterwards. But maybe in the back of his mind, he knows that it's kind of helping him out as well. Well, trust me, our pets, both cats and dogs, they can read our intentions quite often. And I'm convinced that some of them are quite psychic, if you will, knowing what you're thinking before you do it. <laughs> it's either something that you tipped them off with, or maybe they can truly know what you're thinking. So that's interesting. <laughs> I'm sure some of our listeners could attest. To that. Now, see, you've opened up a can of worms there, Dr. Major, with a pet <laughs> ESP. That's that's great. You know, we had an earlier email about someone who had gotten a new dog in their house. And I know that you have sometimes, when you have a new dog in the house, have recommended crate training. If you could kind of review that for us, what it is and why you think it's a good way to welcome a pet into our house. You know, a lot of this depends on the pet itself. But until you know your pet, especially if it's a puppy, crate training is one of the best ways to housebreak if you've got where you can keep the puppy in a crate large enough for moving around, maybe feeding water. But being able to take out at certain times to go to the bathroom, do the business there, and then back in the crate. I'm not saying a crate to be used all the time, but a lot of our dogs especially like it as a place to go to sleep. You'll see a dog with the door open go in and just take a nap, which they like that as a kind of a security type situation. But consistency is a real issue in house training a dog. And when I say consistency, most of us work, we're gone, this sort of thing. But the crate generally works real well. And there are things online that can tell you good tips on using the crate to train. But the main thing is some sort of consistency when you're training your puppy. Yeah, and I think in the past you've told us that the, the, a lot of times the puppy likes having kind of his own defined space to where he can go to where that's his area and you know nobody can bother him there if need be. Yes, that's true. And they, it's kind of like a little cave or a little, little house for them, and most of them really appreciate that. So we have a caller on the line. Let's go to Ardell, who's calling from Ridgeland. Good morning. You're on the air with us. Hi. Good morning. So to Dr. Majors, my question is, I have a Border Collie that got spayed before she went through a heat, and I understand that that's why she now has urethral sphincter hypotonus. And she was put on medication that she isn't tolerating. And so I wanted to get Dr. Majors your take on the efficacy of the surgery that would correct that. Well, that's a great question. What medication was she put on? Oh, Lord, I don't have that in my memory. <laughs> 
Uh, um, is it Proin? Yeah, I think P R O I N Proin. I think I think so. Yes. And she did not respond to that. No, I dosed her several times. In twenty to thirty minutes after dosing her, she would just kind of groan like something's wrong with her belly, which is not a sound that she ever makes otherwise. That's very unusual for that. I would have to say as far as surgery to correct that, that it would probably be up to actually a specialist. I would not attempt it myself, okay? And I'm not sure exactly what the prognosis would be. If you use proin, I've never had that reaction before in a dog. One of the most common causes of urinary incontinence is a uh, right weak muscle there at the urethra. When dogs have been spayed, ovaries are removed, and some of that is estrogen dependent. Has mm. any other medication been recommended? No, that was the one that right. my vet said has the best effect. But it's a lifetime thing that they have to take. If, right. if there was surgery to fix it, I would be willing right. to do that. Certainly, I understand that. And I would consult with specialists. Mississippi State certainly would be a place to go for advice. Does she dribble when she walks or is it when she's laying down? I've not seen it. She will be laying down and taking a nap, and you'll see a small puddle, not a huge volume, and then you'll see a drip or two walking away from when she gets up from that location. Right. does sound like the typical thing that we see after after spaying, usually it occurs in an older dog. We're talking about seven, eight years when we first start seeing this problem. One of the things that can work would be estrogen replacement, actually using diethylstilbestrol. But again, you might be looking at something a lifelong thing, and you have to be careful with the dosage of that, or the dog might start showing signs of estrus or heat. What age was she spayed at? You know, she was about eight months. All right, this is unusual in a dog this age, but I would seek advice from a specialist to see if, if in fact, surgery is recommended. All right, Ardell, thanks for your call. Hope things good, work out good well. Luck. Yeah, good luck with that. And, you know, I'll be glad to talk to you at any time if you want to call me, but I'm just really sure your vet has given you good advice. And it's unusual for that particular drug to cause any type of GI issues or pain. So talk about any other options rather than surgery. All right, thanks for the call. You know, earlier in the show, we talked about bathing your dog. We had a caller who left a message that said Tractor Supply will provide you with the area to wash your dog. You kind of come in and do a self-service thing, but at least they probably have some water in a big tub or something. So if you have a larger dog that you want to bathe, might check what Tractor Supply, several of them in the central Mississippi area, at least. I know that for sure. Yes, that's great. And it is a good thing, especially with the big dog. Doing it there would be a whole lot, what shall I say, less messy than your house. <laughs> That's true. Uh, we have another caller on the line. This time we're off to base St. Louis. Lynette has called in today. Good morning, Lynette. You're on the air with us, so go ahead. Good morning. I have a question. I have a cockatiel that I rescued, and he has uh, two spots on his wings that he pick at. And I took him to about three vets, and I did get any accomplishment with it he still picks he's still itchy like on those two spots and i was concerned one of them put him on antibiotic so it didn't do any good so i was just calling to see if the doctor had any recommendations right and was this condition going on when you rescued him 
it wasn't when I rescued it. It just started up, and then he's been doing it. It's been a while, and I took him three times, and, and nothing happened. So I was just wondering. I then they thought it was the mites and stuff, and given all that, that still didn't do it. So I was wondering, and this antibiotic they put me on, metal doll, metal. Metronidazole, uh, yeah. Yeah, it didn't do any good, and so I just didn't know what else to do for this little well, guy. You know, I doubt if antibiotic are going to help. And, you know, usually if it's mites, they're going to be much more prolific than just in one or two small areas. My suggestion is do something to change his habits if you could. I don't know whether you need to do a different cage. I would make sure he's got plenty of enhancement, if you will, things to play with. Have you got a mirror in his cage? Yeah. A mirror, maybe a, a box that he can go into. But do something to change you know, his habits and see if that might help some. Because uh, I know when I put him on the top of the cage and, you know, he plays up there and he doesn't do it. Right. right. I'm just, I hear him, yeah. So just try to think of things that you can do that will help change his habits, if you will, and distract okay. him. And uh, okay. that's probably the best I can tell you. I don't think antibiotic or anything else is going to help for this. But let's okay. work it. You can call it habitat enrichment if you like, but let's change some things up where you can do different things, okay? Okay, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Well, let us know if it helps. You take care. Thank you. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. Thanks, Lynette, for your call. Uh, Dr. Madge, got about a minute left. Here's a quick one to wrap us up with. My two-year-old indoor cat sounds congested and coughs after drinking water. This is a long-term issue. Any ideas? Gosh, I don't know anything about the cat, obviously, and she didn't say whether it's a stray cat or a cat that she adopted. If something has been going on for quite a while, it sounds like there may be an obstruction somewhere. And if the cat doesn't do this except when he's drinking water, it doesn't sound like it's a fatal type thing. And maybe they've had it checked out, but I think probably having it checked and see if there's anything that can be done. It's a little strange, though, if he's drinking water and does this. It's something obstructive, possibly. By the way, Dr. Major, I want to thank you. You know, on we do this uh, first Thursday of every month where we do this all-pet day, and we pretty much throw anything about our pets at you, and you always seem to come up with at least some sort of a thought or something that will help us pet owners keep our pets well, healthy and happy. So we, we certainly appreciate that, and, and it's amazing how you can, I mean, I guess it's your years of experience, but it's fun to hear you kind of come up with something for at least every caller. Kevin, it's Dr. Major, man. <laughs> we wouldn't expect anything well, less. It's Dr. Major. Come on. I appreciate y'all and thank you and I, I do appreciate the callers and you know sometimes it's a challenge just to be able to respond but we always try to help in the best way that we can okay all right and i always like to remind you that if you ever see something when you're out and about you can take a picture of it and send it to animals at mpbonline.org and we'll see if we can help you figure out what it is creature comforts is a production of mississippi public broadcasting think radio funding provided in part by listeners to hear today's show or previous show one where you can go is creature comforts mpbonline.org. Our show is produced by Java Chapman, and our call screener today was Charles Arnold. For Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield, I'm Kevin Farrell. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts, heard only on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to this MPB Think Radio podcast. MPB depends on support from listeners, so if you can, please contribute today at mpbonline.org.